Hi guys, welcome back to a Life of Education's podcast. We're here with uh, Tave Delaney and Hannah Wilkinson. Um, Tave and Hannah recently got married, but we're still on individual names for now. We were talking about just before the podcast. Um, so Tafe is a what would you class yourself a strength conditioning coach rehab specialist? Yeah. So um, at the moment, I classify myself as a sports therapist because that's what my DHA license is. Right. So within Valiant Clinic, where I'm working at the moment, um, that's what I'd be referred to. But essentially, I do all um, exercise-based rehab. So I don't do any hands-on treatments. Yeah. Specifically, exercise. Um, to help, uh, you know, injuries and late stage rehabilitation and or achieve clients' goals, be whatever they are. And you do that in the clinical setting? In the clinical setting, yeah. yeah. And Hannah, you're you're part of the team there as well? I am, yes. Head of the team? I'm the head of the physiotherapy team. Yeah. <laughs> so At Valiant as well? At Valiant, yep. Um, my specialties are obviously running rehab, um, prevention, uh, I, I do a lot of exercise-based work, but we do obviously hands-on work also. So using things like um, the instrument-assisted um, mobilization, so it works on the fascia a little bit more, um, manual therapies, so mobilizations, mulligans, these types of things. So running uh, enthusiast gets injured, goes to the doc, goes to the physio, sees you first. You treat, you do the assessments, yep. you do the acute stuff, yep. hand them over to TAFE. Then you take them through the re-strengthening stuff in the gym, and then off they yep. go back out on the yeah, exactly. on the track. Exactly. So we've got a nice little continuity. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's the best way to do it. What kind of clients are you seeing? What kind of people would, would come into you? Um, I I'm very lucky. I've got a real variety of patients. So I have you know, average Joe who doesn't do any exercise at all, sits at his computer all day, um, has neck, back, shoulder, knee pain, whatever it is. But off the back of that, I actually work with some international athletes as well. So um, with them particularly, it's more looking at obviously injury prevention, trying to maintain them through their season and get them in line, ready for their races that are coming at specific times. So that's where TAFE's help really comes in because I have obviously have to ma- maintain them to a certain point and then we have to make sure that they're ready uh, their races so do you see them before they're injured they just come in for a little fine tune up and yeah so we've got a couple that i keep an eye on so we do some screening and um, make sure range wise that they're keeping um everything at a certain level because if you get too many deviations for example if you get really tight through your hips all of a sudden you've done a i don't know uh increased load in or volume whatever the last couple of weeks then you can sometimes find that the body reacts in a certain way and in the, that level of athlete it's not great to just allow them to continue because they'll come back you know within very quickly sore knees Achilles playing up these types of things so then we need to say right okay well you need to back off a little bit we'll just open this stuff out and then you can carry on because otherwise I have to fix when they yeah. actually injured themselves. I so. uh, chuckle to myself there Keith you were saying that uh you know, um, do you, do you see them before they're injured, or how do we you like to? No, the ru- runners and endurance athletes as a whole are always carrying some form of injury. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, they have the mentality they'll just push on through it, which is actually great for uh, in terms of when your their compliance is very good when you give them exercises and rehab to do because they they understand what hard work is and uh, etc. Sometimes but a little bit too compliant. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're the kind of ones you'll you'll have to reel in. You know, as clients, yeah, as as Hannah said, we see such a wide range of clientele some of them they're the ones that you you know you have to really um encourage motivate like the couch potato clients yeah exactly yeah yeah. so you give them a piece of paper with the exercises and they never look at it um 
yeah, the doctor in, in work jokes me and, sa- and says, you know, um, the prescription for this person is just a good kick up the backside, <laughs> they, you know, to get them compliant. And then the other ones, you know, like your, you know, very focused endurance athletes, you really have to reel them in. Um, and that's, that, that's uh, you know, uh, uh, an art form in itself is trying to determine who needs what from a compliance point of view. Um, but yeah, so. it does make a huge difference because sometimes you'll say to them, ah, like, you know, go off and do, I want you to do this in the morning, I want you to do this in the me- evening and they come back in the next day and they're like, oh, something's really sore. And I'm like, what did you do yesterday? It's like, oh, well, I did that and that and that in the morning and then we did it again at lunch and then we, d- and you're like, that's not, that's not going to help you yeah. <laughs> like, too much. Come on guys. We, we sat down with one <laughs> of the team GB athletes that we work with and, um, always said to her we looked at her previous season and it was her first real push into that you know that level of uh, of elite sport and she'd completely overdone it she'd basically like trained really well and then over overdid it overtrained didn't listen to rehab advice and um really struggled through the remaining part of the season so we had a uh, you know quite a frank discussion with her and said you know looking back on last year what changes would you make and what are we going to do differently this year before we proceed and make all our plans? Oh, uh, yeah, she was, she was, she was on, you know, she we're was ba- on board. <laughs> we basically said we're not blue tacking you together for this yeah. season. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we did last season. Yeah. So <laughs> I have a little bit of that problem too. Like when someone says not to do something, I overdo it so much and then my feet hurt so much I can't walk for five days. Like it must have been the run and everyone told me not to run. No. So I understand. I think when people are really eager to, like, eager to get started and eager to get better or eager to like win their race or something they have this motivation um and that makes them not listen to anything that a professional might advise them that's just generally you find from my the, point. the the more uh, experienced athletes can appreciate that with regards training and rehabilitation there's a a, a right amount to do and that only you find more than novice ones, even at, at a, they could be competing at a high level, but they're relatively young in terms of experience. They're the ones that associate hard training or hard rehab mm-hmm. with, uh, with achieving their goals. It's the more experienced ones you find that they've made these mistakes and they go, actually, you know what, maybe in terms of running, uh, it's good to do some low heart mm. uh, rate training because I can utilize my you know, fat stores better and it improves my running economy. And then when I do my rehab, if they say do two sets of 10 reps, I do that and not you know, 50 sets uh, and pick a heavier weight. So Are you trying to say I'm not an <laughs> athlete? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just stubborn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Basically. It's just that idea, isn't it? That more is better. Just always more and more and more because mm. these guys have to run faster. They've got to jump higher. They've got to just, they have to do more on the day of their performance. And I, I also think that people really are very undereducated about the importance of rest and recovery. Like it's almost like the last thing that you learn about when it comes to like, any type of sports or anything like that it's like oh I have to rest really um I think people learn about it less so when when people like you guys educate them about recovery and rest you do that right and it, yeah well, it's actually it's still like an ongoing battle it's particularly in sort of the elite side of things um or very experienced um semi-pro athletes I've I had one that I worked with last year and I just could not get him to rest like he would just train every single day irrelevant of what was told to him or anything else um and i I think he managed to muddle through because 
he'd been training at this working up to this level for like seven years and I'd known him for sort of four years and each year we'd had again blue tack him together before a race because things had gone wrong whereas last year we said no right well I'll manage you this season let's get you through and one of my stipulations was I want you to have a day's rest every week it, it completely ignored me, which is up to him. Um, and did, he did have a good season. He didn't get injured, but that's not sustainable, mm. you know, yeah. especially for endurance athletes when you're running marathons, half marathons, the, yeah. the impact and the load that you're putting through your body and your tendons, you need to give it time to rest and recover. And I think, I don't know where I saw this, but maybe I saw it somewhere. Someone was explaining um, the importance of sleep and they were actually showing it on a graph how well people improved um, physically, if they actually slept eight to ten hours a day, what their game was like the next day, how, how uh, is that right? Yeah, so what was really interesting, we did um, a postgraduate diploma in sports and exercise medicine two years ago with the University of South Wales, <laughs> and I thought the majority of the, the course would be related to, you know, the most current research on ACL reconstruction rehab, or, you know, low back pain and how to deal with it, but a lot of the the push in the medical profession now is to think more holistically. And I know you've had guests on in the past on this show to think about things like sleep. If you're taking your client's subjective, so you're taking their you know, um, previous injuries, their lifestyle, and you know, before you get onto injury, and if they're sleeping three or four hours a night, the emphasis is to address that you know, if you're not the clinician to do that, to refer on to someone, um, you look after the injury side, but make it apparent to them that this is something you're going to have to to also improve on and give them, you know, a referral pathway for mm. that. Um, so, yes, hugely important things yeah. like sleep, nutrition, etc. Yeah, it's actually quite a, um, there was a research study out just within the last sort of six months, I think, say, particularly looking at endurance athletes and highlighting that if you're not getting enough sleep, the impact that that has on your performance, because physically if any of your viewers are lot endurance distance runners like they will know you know you wake up one day and you just feel absolutely shattered you're not going to have your best run that day so it it's common sense as well as what the science is saying mm -hmm. is that if you're not sleeping enough you're not resting and recovering and you're not able to then give your best output in terms of racing and training I was, performance um, reading a book uh, born born to run isn't that yeah mm. and they they were talking about the the big difference between professionals and you know um amateurs but that is not so much the training they're doing because a lot of the train you can only fit in so much training yeah. throughout the day but the difference is what happens in between that the amateur goes to work from nine to five you know has x amount more stress does isn't able to you know have that afternoon nap isn't able to have that sports massage isn't able to you know really plan their meals as well and he said that was the biggest difference not so much the actual training the amateurs can frequently get in as much training as the professionals but it's what happens in between and i thought you know and that was an interesting point to make yeah i've got that book at home i haven't read it yet it's, <laughs> on, it's on my bookshelf it gives you the running yeah. demon you'll read a chapter and like right Shoes on, I'm going for a oh, run. Yeah. <laughs> and you get back in that, I'm going to read another chapter. And you're like, can Anna, I go for Anna a run again? <laughs> signed, up, signed, signed up to the Creek Striders Half Marathon, <laughs> as, uh, uh, which is in how long? Six weeks? Something like that, yeah. Not one run done yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not one. I've been having a time out. It's okay. <laughs> 
So you need a good dose of kick up the yes. ass on your yeah. program. Married Steve, I've got no chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, is, uh, is where people should be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that, Hannah. We'll look yeah. forward Thanks. to hearing how that goes. How's, how's no your uh, marathon uh, preparation Oh, I've got to do it like a 22 tomorrow. So I might have to... Aren't you... You're in running and vehement. Vietnam, yeah, right? In uh, six or eight weeks. So I've got like a... Tw- okay. I've nice. got to get over 21, 22 tomorrow. The, the problem here with it is, um, is the, the weather. It's just too... You have to go out so early. Yeah, you do. It doesn't matter how like fit you are, whatever. When the sun comes up over 9 a.m. and you've been running for an hour already or you're running for, for an hour and a half, two hours, you just shut down. Like that's it. As, a, as an amateur, not as somebody who can push through these high-level yeah. like things, you've got to be up at 5... And then you got to be on the track by five thirty-six. If you're going to run for two hours, you need to finish before eight. That's so difficult, you know. So we'll see how I go. I mean, should we clear our schedule for next week? <laughs> well, I need to clear my schedule. <laughs> I need to sleep during the day and then start running at midnight. But the weather in Vienna should be quite a lot cooler than here, so you do get a little bit of an adva- advantage. He's going to Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Vietnam. So yeah. Yeah. Vienna. No, Vietnam. In, oh, that's uh, going to be at the end of November. Humid. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, Lovely. It's going to be fun. I've got no help for you on that one, I'm afraid. So yeah, <laughs> just hold on tight. Let's hope. Uh, so basically, Keith will be coming to see both yeah. of you. <laughs> I probably should have already I been. I thought you were going to show yeah. Well, because someone told me about, about somebody <laughs> told me this might be an interesting way to think through it. Somebody told me uh, the Born to Run book is going to make me question how I run. <laughs> so when I bought it, I was like, okay, let me see if there's kind of merit in this. And then as the like the preceding two weeks went by, so basically it's a four, it's a heavy four foot running book, isn't it? Or it talks about the difference between the two. Yeah, that's it's you know it's a, one of the themes throughout it is is that discussion about trainers barefoot, four foot, etc. But this is definitely Hannah's area, so I like her. yeah, I'm really curious because everybody debates this, and every well, I hear lots of people talking about it. We've got a lot of friends and a lot of people who have been on the podcast before, who are very adamant about like barefoot running and the benefits are and etc. Part of your yoga? Uh, oh, maybe, but yeah. I'm part of that yoga community. Yeah, yeah, I could, I so could never do barefoot running. My feet would fall yeah, off. Yeah. But so, what's your opinion on that? Um. It's a, it's a very individual approach from my point of view. I do a lot of running analysis with people. So part of that session is that I do look at them run in bare feet. And some people are just more susceptible to having problems if they were to do that. So for example, if you're somebody that's got a really high arched foot, um, people with, we call it a higher quietness. So people with a higher quietness can struggle to get enough pronation sometimes. And if they're someone that's always been shod, so they're someone that's always worn shoes, they're probably not going to be my favorite candidate to say, oh, let's put you barefoot. Let's see how that goes. Because with the high aquinas, the pronation availability is, is somewhat limited. Um, they tend to not be able to get quite as much pronation as someone with a more neutral foot. It also depends on what you're after. So if you're looking to run 10K on the road and you're super keen to go into a minimalist, minimalist shoe, um, I'd say, mm, okay, yeah, fine, but it's going to take you two years. If you're mm. someone that's always worn shoes, because oh, wow. your feet are not used to it, mm. and this is this was the big thing. So when these low-profile minimalist shoes came in, there was one brand in particular, obviously that there was quite a lot of people buying them, thinking, "Oh, they look cool," and then they were getting injured. If you take your feet that if you've been in shoes since you're a child, and then you try and make yourself run without any shoes on concrete, 
you're going from a, a low level load with some nice cushioning to mm. a much higher load with no support, like no cushioning underneath your foot. It makes sense just to say that you're going to get injured. It's a no brainer. And particularly um, sort of stress fractures into the feet, fifth metatarsal, these types of things, they were really prevalent when this fad began. So there is um, a good amount of evidence to say that when you take someone from a shod run, so running in a shoe with a good sole um, to barefoot or a minimalist shoe, you tend to see a bit of a difference in the gait pattern. So in a big heeled shoe, you tend to see a lot of people heel strike. It's a big word, Woo, don't heel strike, don't worry about it. Mm. Like 80% of people heel strike, <laughs> it's mm. okay. When you take them in to barefoot or into a minimalist shoe, often what you can see is they come much more onto the midfoot. Now, if we look at that in terms of a graph, what you see is with the shod um, or thick trainer, you'll see there's a spike at initial impact where they put the heel on the floor. There's then a slight dip and then the impact level goes up again. And this is your ground reaction force curve. So for the um, shod runner impact, little offload and then a slight load again where you take the weight over onto the foot. With a forefoot runner, you'll see that it's more of a nice smooth arc as they put the ball of the or the midfoot down all the load goes on and then it all gradually comes off again so there is definitely from that point of view a difference in terms of the ground reaction forces that we see but is your body ready for that kind of change and how quickly do you want to do it is my would it be fair to say that the the concept is a good concept but that the way people are going about it is Mm. is um need some more work it's you know it's a gradual progress a process yeah that can take uh, quite a lot of time absolutely yeah and that's essentially the reason why i haven't been to see you guys because (laughs) the plan was okay if i do this then maybe i should go to a four foot run and then i quickly realized if i have this race at the end of november it doesn't matter if i even it doesn't matter i need way longer if i'm going to change to a new style of running Mm -hmm like but here's my question sorry to interrupt you but why would you like what would be the reason if you're comfortable wearing shoes this is sorry this is a really simple question um if you're comfortable wearing shoes why would you move to a minimalist shoe what would be the point for the layman not for the elite athlete because then you could see performance differences that would be the the reason then but for like average joe I think, again, though, it's performance differences. So, you know, if you're Mm -hmm. racing in two weeks' time and you think this pair of minimalist shoe, because of the hype, is going to make me run, I don't know, 30 seconds faster, Mm. and you've got this in your head that this is is what I want to do, that's what you're going to say, well, this is my opportunity to do it. I'm going to get those shoes and I'm going to run in those. Um, In terms of efficiency of run, that also, you know, using less energy, less braking, Um, when you change your run technique, but that doesn't always equate to you running faster. Mm. You know, it very much depends on the individual. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I like that word, because breaking kind of instigate, it it goes straight into my brain as a physio that like you're, you're breaking into your joints, you know? And if you're a heel runner, it doesn't really mean that, you know? to physically put a lot of force through your joints with just putting your heel on the floor, you'd have to go a pretty long way, I think. It's, yeah. a, na- it's, a, it's a normal pattern of running, um, and it's a natural pattern of running that, as I say, 80% of people do. It's just that when you look more to the elite side of things, you will see that they run on the mid 
sole of their foot because we are looking for efficiency and we're looking for speed and they've been trained in that way over years not in the last six weeks before yeah, the race it. i'm going to change my style to this and that is ultimately how you end up in injury street mm. especially sort of tender achilles i think just uh, just in relation to that you know the runners you work with it's not always about um big changes in footwear yeah, etc no. like so even for yourself keith um we often see people that are coming in just to have a look at their running gait and have some cues in their head throughout their race yeah. that will help them um n you know not only get quicker but just to to um, get, get through it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so little cues like, you know, spine tall, or they you frequently look at cadence, don't you? Yeah, and cadence a is a really interesting one. So I, I'm very much a believer that you, because you're never taught to run, your body develops in the way it, it wants to, basically. Mm -hmm. So you'll have certain areas that have more tension, like some people store more tension around their hips, some people store more tension around their hamstrings. Um, and there's a couple of little things that when I do a run assessment, I tend to... I change one or two things and that will tell me how your body naturally wants you to run. So some people will instinctively be a heel striker no matter what I do with them. Okay, We can cue them and say go on your forefoot but to my mind those people will then end up with things like Achilles tendonitis because they're already got a little bit more tension through the posterior chain and that over stresses it. Um, whereas other people will go from being quite heavy heel strikers to more midfoot with a simple cadence change or a, a different cue particularly around the hip area um, and then they seem to settle into that quite nicely so it's very individual and it's depending on your needs if you're a 10k runner I'm going to see if there's if you want to get faster I'd coach you in a different way to if you're a marathon runner because you don't run the same way mm. Um, mm. and there's no need for those what are the main differences well if you're doing a shorter distance obviously in elite marathon running you know their technique is fairly consistent they have a uh, thank you they're basically <laughs> they're basically sprinting those guys sprint yeah, they're basically sprinting it's right? crazy so their time on the ground is minimal their cadence is super high they're not overstriding much they're midfoot striking generally but they have quite a, a good knee pull through now generally for sorry you and me <laughs> elite we're elites yeah um to begin with, I wouldn't Low cue level that. <laughs> <laughs> Semi-pro, semi-pro. Yeah. yeah, we like I wouldn't coach that because a lot of the time, even just getting upright body position or hip position is the first point of call. So we'd start working there. I like to think of it as a house, like you need a stable base, like a foundation, and then we slowly put the brickwork in. So we start to look at once your middle is correct, what do we do with your legs? How much heel lift do we need? How much knee through do we need? What are your arms doing? So it's like gradually, gradually come up until you've got a nice house with all the little bits. So when, if right we're going for, we live near um, Kite Beach, if we're going for a walk or run along there, runs don't happen that often. <laughs> Not at the moment. Um, it's so been the summer, it, it, come on. When you, when you see people running by, <laughs> I just see Hannah's brain going, like, you, you know, <laughs> if their arms are going across the body, it's like, look, look at his, because, you know, the rotation you should have, and what is it? <laughs> Pocket to mouth. Yeah, uh, so they, like, obviously, when you waste energy, particularly in marathons, if you waste energy rotating left to right, I mean, that it, it's a waste, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm always like, well, that's no good. What's he trying to do with that? Where's <laughs> he going? Do you want to go over there? He's going to be going forwards. <laughs> so you do get you, some funny games. No, you, yeah, that's <laughs> you're you're you. probably watching Keith. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. I, it sounds like I need this. You <laughs> run on Kai Beach, don't like, you? I find a 10K, you know, short run, boom, done, easy, tired, but no big deal. But it's, it's the... You need to run faster then. It's, it's, when, <laughs> it's, it's, it's when you're 24, 25Ks. 
and you're dragging your knees, you know, you're just, and you're, you know, you feel like I've got a nice long stride, but if I catch my shadow, like there's no heel flick, there's no heel raise at the back. Like I am probably in the most ineffective run, but it's just, all right, let me just do another 800 meters and then I'll, I'll get to whatever corner I need to get to. But that's where I find the struggle is. It's not at the beginning. Like, and it's also then I'm thinking how I need to run. But I'm so tired. My brain is tired. Like, I'm not thinking anything clear. I'm, you know, you've got that just pure brain fatigue. You've been running for two and a half hours. Also, because I feel like just I used to run a lot before my accident. But I remember after like two hours, you'd run out of things to think about. Like, you made up every scenario in your mind. You yeah. get to two hours and you're like, I'm done. All the voices in your head yes. had a conversation. Yeah. Yes. Got done. bored and left. Exactly. Yeah. So now it's like you on your own. And yeah. it's like, whoa, what do I do now? Yeah. So... And then you're trying to, thinking about technique at that stage, that's where I need it, but that's where my brain is like, okay, if I just, 100 more meters, then I'll quit. 100 more (laughs) meters, then I'll quit. (laughs) It's just quite hard. I think uh, that you need to find a more positive way to look at that, even though it's painful. I think that's the wall phase, right? So a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, and that's Um, halfway. And that's... That's halfway. Yeah. <laughs> normally, <laughs> normally it gets around sort of, what is it? I'm thinking in miles. My brain's going 18 miles. What's that in kilometers? Uh, like, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Anyway, m- but but <laughs> it's really far. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So maybe finding some, that something that you just keep in the back of your mind that you haven't thought about well, for, for a little you, bit more you, positive. You know, you've got a, a, a big motivation to be doing this marathon. Um, so, you know, that's probably where you're Yeah, now it's gone public. Come on, Keith. Now it's gone public and everyone knows about it. So we'll, no see how, we'll see how that no goes. Pressure. So let's get back. Go on. Let's get off me. What kind of injuries are you seeing with people who, but the difference between the heel striker and the forefoot striker? Okay. Um, well. Like, and I ask that because what if somebody is trying to think, I keep getting shin splints or I keep getting Achilles thing. Is it my run? Yeah. Should they, should, is there a way they can shape their, their mindset on that? So when someone comes in with an injury, say let's take Achilles tendonitis, for example. Um, it is quite important that, I look at their run to start with to see what they've been doing and one of the key things I always ask them is have you changed your or tried to change your technique in the last six months for example maybe even longer it depends on what their presentation is but um, when we look at their run if they've gone from being someone that's a heel striker and they've tried to change they're like I've bought these new minimalist shoes I've put myself mid foot and I look at their run it's I can see my toes <laughs> <laughs> it's often that they have tried to change their technique or they've fiddled um with what they're doing with their shoes and it can make a difference I'm I'm not gonna say that shoes are the be all and end all it's very much how you run in your shoes but um if you put someone that's a heel strike into a forefoot within six months i think that's too quick um and they do tend to get problems with achilles tendonitis after that so and it's purely load related achilles tendonitis issues what's the too quick bit like they just have to be more patient with their progressions and their distances yeah so the thing with it depends how what your history is like so if you've been a runner your whole life and all of a sudden because you met someone and they said oh you'll get faster if you do this oh you read that book yeah oh, you, read I, I, you said <laughs> that to me i changed because like, i read this book yeah i change every week when we talk to someone new on the <laughs> podcast i'm like i'm doing this this week so i understand that <laughs> it you have to have from my mind you have to have good reason as to why you're doing that um what your what your goals are and also to think about how far you're running okay because if you are a marathon runner i would never put you onto a four foot 
to run a marathon because a it you won't last yes far eh? mm. <laughs> it's horrendous yeah. and b i don't your achilles just won't take it and that's a given you know i ran london marathon a few years ago and i started out behind this lass who was trotting along on her toes bouncing around and i thought poof blimey you're not going to last very long are you and then obviously you get muddled in didn't see her but I just don't know how anybody can run on the forefoot for a marathon or an ultramarathon. It just doesn't seem to work out. Yeah, that way. like the elite guys mm. are doing it, but they're doing it in two hours and 30 minutes. They're not doing it in three hours Correct. and four hours. Yeah, and their training like is to supplement that. And as again, they've been training at that level for yeah. years. It's not, they've just decided in six months, right, yeah, let's do yeah, this. Of course. Um, and if you were to do that, again, there would probably be a, a little regime that we would give you to try and help you supplement that change. So looking at running technique i always say it's going to take you a minimum of a year so if you look to change from heel strike to midfoot give yourself a year work on it work on it slowly give yourself exercises that help to supplement that if <clears throat> you're a heel striker and wanting to go to a forefoot strike for whatever reason again that's quite a big change so not only are you going to need to let your feet get used to that you also have to let the rest of your body get used to that so right up hips back everything um and again i would give yourself even longer for that transition um it's particularly if you're going to be racing and you want to race in four foot i'd say that's at least a year year and a half maybe even up to towards the two year mark to be fully four foot happy no injuries so um, from heel strike to four foot you're talking a year yeah yeah you just said you, you want to give you the rest of your body a bit more of a chance to adapt. What, what, what considerations are you thinking about there? Yeah, so when you, um, when you change the way you run, you change which muscle groups you use. Okay, so generally, the evidence is a bit wishy-washy on this, but generally from clinical experience, if I take someone and put them into, again, this is not me making them do this, I put them into a certain rhythm that tends to make people run midfoot. Um, they always say, oh, I can feel my glutes work. I can feel my bum muscles working more. I can feel my hamstrings. Um, and usually when they've been running, all they can feel is their quad and they feel pressure in their knees. So this is something that I might do with someone that comes in with knee pain. I'm not a physio that would ever stop anybody running unless they've got like some sort of fracture or stress fracture, something like this. We spoke about a guy who had that, didn't we? Yes, yes. Well, so yeah, he had to stop. He was an interesting one. He did have to stop. I actually need to follow him up. <laughs> he disappeared. <laughs> he was a really interesting one, actually. Um, yeah, he had an interesting... Um, yeah, I'm curious. Oh, yeah, go on. Sorry, I'll yeah. allow so, so <laughs> It was actually... Do you know how it came through? And we were talking about social media recently on, on a podcast. Um, I did a post talking about shin splints, just a couple of exercises because I had a basketballer. And an old friend of a friend messaged me and just with this kind of history of should I do this if I have um, shin splints? And the way we were talking, I was like, look, actually, it sounds like you need a, an assessment to so go off and see Hannah. Just because it was in it, it was it was text. I couldn't do anything in text. I was like, look, yeah. you need to get an assessment if this is the case. He was just getting pain on any sort of distance. And change of uh, change of uh, oh, he did playing football as well. Football, yeah. yeah, he stopped playing football, and he's a big foot. He's in the he's in the business. The, bit, the football world, business-wise, yeah. so it's cru crucial for him to be able to play. It was quite interesting. So when he came in, he actually um, he'd taken an impact directly from a stud to the shin. Um, and when I looked at his x-ray, he had... It's not your typical stress fracture, but it's a mid-tibial stress fracture that he was presenting with. And th this was two years down the line. And I, I'm like, this guy's young. Why have you not healed? Um, mm. And when I, s it took ages. We sat and talked through everything. Whoa, sorry. Two, two years, years later, yeah, he still had a stress years, fracture? Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Um, and he had a most recent, he's had a recheck. So he'd had another 
x-ray done and it, it was healing but I could still see that it wasn't fully healed and obviously he was still presenting with some pain um, and we took ages and a lot of the time for me I, I just need to sit down and understand what these people are doing um, and it really helps me treat them so when I spoke to him when he'd initially done it he'd done nothing about it which is fair enough you know you take a hit to the shin and you carry on right it's yeah you don't normal. think that it's going to yeah. result in a stress no. fracture but when he had identified that it was a problem and had it investigated um, and been to have it all checked, he then ignored the advice of the practitioner that was um, treating him. So he'd carried on doing running and football and bits and pieces. Um, <clears throat> and he had progressively got better, got better, got better. However, well, obviously when they got in contact with you, he was still having problems. So I looked at it and thought, oh, this is really odd. Why is this not healing? But the history basically told me that he just not let himself rest and recover. And again, one of these people that wouldn't stop doing. So he was continuing to play basketball and it was never healing. Continuing properly. to run, continuing yeah. to do all the things that when you have a stress fracture, we ask you not to do. Yeah, <laughs> um, for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. Yeah. You can obviously do gym work. And I was saying to him, look, you know, give yourself three months. Just take a time out. Stop running. Um, do your gym work, keep yourself fit this way, but let that heal, you know, because the only other option is to go and have that operated on, mm. which isn't a pleasant um, idea either. And this is frequently where I would see clients from the doctors and from the physios in the clinic is because they'd get a client like that and they're like, he needs to be doing some form of exercise or training, but we can't load up his, say if it was his right chin that had the stress fracture. Um, and then you give them alternatives. So you go with them, you give them a gym program, you, you show them other different ways that they can get that mm. exercise and training buzz without actually, uh, you know, and include their rehab exercises. So they're kind of killing two birds with one stone, but not affecting their mm. joint only in a positive way. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so it was a really interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll yeah. find out where he's at. Well, yeah, because he, yeah, his, his, his business is with professional footballers so they come out here during their vacation time and I know that he goes and kicks a ball around with them because it's part of his building rapport with them and then he used to go for a run on the beach every now and again but uh so yeah, going back, back to yeah back to the actual <laughs> stress <laughs> fractures from the yeah heel strikers you're talking about yeah so heel strikers um, again this isn't typical but you tend to, s a very common stress fracture in running is um, tibial torsion, so tibial stress fractures, um, which there is some evidence to say it's related to pronation, and then there's other evidence to say that it's not related to pronation. Generally, um, that is the most common one that we would see along with fifth metatarsal stress fracture. So that will be when maybe someone's trying to change their running technique and they go more forefoot they can end up putting a lot of pressure on the outside of their feet um, and with repetitive loading we end up with stress fractures now i always think and from our learning a few years ago um, and clinical presentations stress fractures are always there for a reason so very often we'll see that people have either gone from zero to hero so they've done nothing and then they've decided in three months they're going to run a marathon which your bone structure physically isn't um, mm. ready for at that point so our, our body's very clever and when we put it under stress it has the, the ability to remodel so our bones have these very small fibers in them um, called trabeculae and they grow and strengthen along the lines of stress that we put on them so when you don't give your body the chance to remodel in that way and prepare for the stress that you're putting it under 
it breaks down. And this is what we see with stress fractures. So if you go from zero to hero, obviously that's the result that we see. The other thing tends to be, um, unfortunately runners tend to think that being lighter is better. And there's a difference between being light and being malnourished. And when you don't eat enough, um, there's a condition, particularly in female runners, called female athlete triad. Um, they tend to end up doing a lot of training. They don't eat enough. They're very underweight. And we start to lose their bone density. And these particular athletes are very, very susceptible to stress fractures, um, both fifth metatarsal and tibial stress um, fractures. You can imagine with these type of uh, clients that we see, you know, you're opening up a can of worms here with this sort of stuff, but you yeah. have to face facts with them and explain to them exactly why this is happening. And that's when, you know, I was talking earlier about when we did our postgraduate diploma in sports and exercise medicine, that's a key part, their lifestyle, you know, their nutrition. Um, it's also psychological as well. Yes, exactly. Mm. So, you know, um, yes, they have this stress fracture, but the reason isn't just from their increase in load. It's because they are not getting the right nutrients into their body and they're, uh, you know, uh, underweight. So, mm. And um, not resting. Yeah. It's a big mm. problem as well because it's obvi often they try and say that it's everything else mm. but this because it's not a problem that people want. You know, I have to be light to run quick, but you can't run quick with a stress fracture. You know, so we have to f very gently tease that out of the scenario and try and fix that because otherwise we can send them back, we can let it heal, send them back running, but it will happen again. Yeah, so. that's a difficult one. I mean, that's that's the case of did they get injured because they're malnourished? Or now, rather, are they running because they want to lose weight and become slim or are they becoming slim because they want to run and they want to win their race? Very different patients there. Yeah, and the, this is what the what we love being part of a multidisciplinary team is that within Valiant Clinic, there is a dietitian, a psychologist, a health coach, a physio, sports med doctor, radiology on site. So this person in with a scenario like this can avail of all these services um, under one roof and we all liaise with each other for the benefit of the client. So, you know, if, if we just determine that, well, actually the biggest thing now is that we sort out your 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 diet along with you know giving you the right rehabilitation exercises and giving you alternatives of training so you get that you know exercise fix then you know you're going to get better much quicker and you know yeah that's awesome that you guys have all that that full team there we're super lucky it's almost like we've got a uh, you know the sort of setup they'd have in an elite setting but yeah. we have it in a clinic here so, in Dubai, so at the so. moment one of the things <laughs> they've rolled out is a is um, for uh, executives called Well365. So it's for, they take um, some of the, like at the moment we've got some of the top um, like businessmen in, um, in some of the companies around Dubai and the business has um, put them through this program and essentially they get everything screened. So it's a really proactive um, take on, on, uh, on the medical world. So they come in and they have so they see me for uh, like a movement screen and review of their current exercise. They would see the optometrist, like check out their eyes, see the endocrinologist, see every everything that works. And so that they have, you know, for the business's point of view, they want that their top guys making decisions are in the best of health and, um, you know, that they're not out sick with yeah. you know, for, for weeks on end and, you know, and, you know, if they need to see a, a health coach for stress management or if they need to see a dietitian or whatever it may be, they, they see all these people and it's 
the, uh, within the clinic, and it's great. So we have like a team meeting then, um, where we all we all there on at last Wednesday, and we discuss each of the the cases. And you know, from your point of view, what did, what what did you find, and what does this person need to work on? You have everyone there from. You know, like I said, people looking at their eyes to the dentist to everything. That's so awesome. Like really elite thorough. sports uh, monitoring awesome. in the corporate setting. Yeah. <laughs> Say that again, sorry. It's like how you would athlete. look at the corporate oh, yeah, athlete. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the but pro. the thing is, is that all of that, improving all of that is going to obviously make people a lot more productive yes, and make them a lot more efficient in the way that they think and maybe healthier and make better decisions mm. as opposed to maybe yeah. sometimes unreasonable decisions. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of benefit. When you're not in the medical profession and you are in a more corporate environment you know day to day your body and your health isn't something that you would think about and our our bodies at the end of the day are something that in this world we cannot buy another one you know we only get one so if you're not aware of it and you don't understand it for because we're not all medically trained and that's completely fine it's normal but it doesn't mean you can't look after it yeah because it's not like going to lulu and buying a something else a new bit a part yeah. for it you know it's going to the mechanic and get a new wheel we can't do that yeah so. i think that's it people don't understand isn't it so like well they they know they have to be healthy all right I've got why 12, are we I've being healthy i've got 12 <laughs> meetings today that the health has to yeah, go but that that gets neglected so much yeah. like i know so many people and they work 12 14 hour days and they literally they drive to work they sit in an yeah. office work a 14 hour day meetings back to back go home eat dinner, watch Netflix on the sofa and then go to sleep. And they do that every yeah. single day. And over time, that just, people yeah. end up like putting on weight because they take out every night. They end up with back problems because they sit all day. Yeah. Like a, a huge like multitude of problems. Yeah, and I bet throughout the whole time, they are aware that what they're doing is not healthy. They just don't have a choice. And that worry begins to build up. If you can go and just get like a complete, like a mechanics, just show up at, at the door, you just follow <laughs> yeah. the conveyor belt. You see, you get your movement screen at the beginning. Okay, movement, tick, tick, tick. Okay, we need to work on this. Yeah. Health, bones, joints. Do you know the other That's thing? Awesome. I think that a lot of people don't realize how long it takes to get better either. Like someone, and this is something that really like um, was very apparent to me. I think most people are like, oh, we're going to get better in three months. And it's like, no, <laughs> like it's not three months. It takes a lot longer and it depends, particularly if it's a non-communicable disease that people develop, things like diabetes. It can take two to three years for them to reverse the damage of 20, 35 years exactly. of bad exactly. eating. Yeah. I think, and, and I'm sure you have this with your clients, you know, we all work in, in the health industry, is that, you know, if you're setting achievable goals, like short-term achievable goals, much more likely to, to make it and change those habits you know yeah um so that's the, the biggest thing. yeah i think the thing is even from like an injury perspective you know the severity and the longevity of that injury from the point where you meet the practitioner you're going to work with to get better that often indicates how long it's going to take you to get better so if you came to me with a muscle strain i might say to you i'll have you back in two weeks no bother it won't be completely healed but you'll be back training but if you fall from the roof and break everything <laughs> like me it's gonna take a year to 18 months you know to yeah. feel more normal again and that's the thing that a lot of orthopedics don't tell you and particularly here in dubai i find this all the time yeah. they're like oh we'll do your shoulder no problem so they go in have a rotator cuff repair you know stitch a few things up you'll be fine in three months yeah excuse me 
So it again, depending on your level, like if you don't do anything with your body really, you just go to work and you just type, you don't lift anything, you don't drive. Three months, yeah, okay, maybe. But um, for anybody that has a slight interest in doing anything active, we're gonna be looking much more down the yeah. six, one, eight Yeah, one months, to two years. Year, I you know. know, after I left hospital, I got given like a, a note from the hospital as to when I could go back to work. And so I broke everything, came back, I got a note that you can go back to work on September the 1st. That was two months later. I just had 14 surgeries, everything reconstructed. And I got what two months. What did they think months, you did for a job? I had no idea. I was like, September 1st, I was still in a wheelchair. I couldn't even wash myself. Oh, I was like, what? Are you crazy? And I could, I could sit in a wheelchair for five minutes without feeling like I was, everything was so heavy. I was like, I need to lie down. I've been here five minutes but two months that's what I got given (laughs) I was so shocked two years later that would have been a more appropriate like work sick leave for you have to be realistic in your target so as Mm. Tate said like if if you'd said right okay well my first objective is to get back to work giving you a reasonable timeline and like little gateways almost to get to that goal is more appropriate than saying, I oh, don't do anything off you go to work in two months. Yeah. You know? Keith and I were on an excellent course uh, last weekend called the Sporting Knee. A guy called Tim McGrath came uh, over to Dubai. He's based in Australia, particularly with the University of Canberra and works with a lot of um, teams there. He has both a private clinic and um, works with some of the top um, rugby teams in the region. Anyway, on re- in relation to that timeline, mm-hmm. it was about and he liaises a lot with the surgeons that are given a realistic timeline. And now he's in a, in a world of elite sports, so it's very important they get back as quick as possible. And he was talking about how to periodize your rehab just the same way you'd periodize training for an event. You know, how if Keith's building up to do this marathon, he's going to be gradually building his, his, low, his volume up and then close to the time he's going to reduce the volume but increase the intensity and the ex- same thing with uh, rehab and it was really interesting yeah. and I think there was a load of uh, clinicians there predominantly physios yeah. um, and they were th- they all you know we all were thinking well actually I don't think we'd th- we're as on the ball as we should be with setting a timeline with the mm. client and um, setting out what we're doing you know and so yeah. they can see the plan and being realistic about it, not, you know, yeah. two months um, post. <laughs> a big thing he talked about as well is, is uh, speak to the client. Be careful of the language you use, first of all. You know, like don't, so don't, don't over-promise, so don't important. under-promise. And mm. in a sporting environment, be careful what you say to the coaches. Yeah, we spoke about that on yeah, another with, with podcast with that you Jordan. can really change people's yeah. minds by what you say to them particularly if it's negative people yeah. attach themselves to negative comments so much more than the positive Absolutely. ones and then they're stuck like i can't do anything because i have a knee problem yeah. so so listen to this for a statistic right um when we were doing our course and this is now a research study that's banded around a lot in the medical world if you go in with low back pain if you scan they scanned uh, over 2,000 people that didn't have low back pain, okay? And 91% of them showed that they had some form of disc bulge. Wow. Okay? 91, none of them had low back pain. <laughs> now, if you came in with low back pain, I immediately order an MRI. And you said, Caroline, you've got this nasty disc bulge, this is... Yeah. And mm. then all of a sudden you've got in your head, well, that changes, I'm, I'm not going to pick that up from the ground yeah. i'm gonna have to be very careful and it's exactly what your back doesn't want you know yeah. you need to be moving yes in the correct way 
Um, so that was a big thing. And then you develop this chronic pain pattern that we've all seen with clients where they, they have fear avoidance of movement. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, it's quite like a vicious yeah, like a cycle. I, yeah. like I, I don't like going to doctors anymore because they always find things wrong with me. It's like <laughs> you have arthritis, you have this, <laughs> this is going to fall off. Oh. And I just can't, I can't off. listen to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can't listen to that. Remember, it's so bad. Up after I had my s- second knee reconstruction with a rugby injury. And the, the doctor was there, he was a young doctor, and he was like, um, so yeah, just to let you know, um, don't expect that you'll be able to play rugby again. And this is just after the surgery, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I got there, you're never going to walk <laughs> again. You're two months, you, have to, yeah. you have to be working in two days. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I got the, you're never going to walk again, but here, two months <laughs> off, like then you can go back to work. Yeah. It's like, thank so, you. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I think you take everything with a pinch of salt, you know, um, and I think that they're bringing more and more of that stuff into the medical profession now where you learn how to communicate yeah. better with and now in actually in Ireland only the so you can get a maximum of 600 points in the leaving cert to to become a and every, everyone wants to do very popular to do medicine so to get into medicine in Ireland you need 600 points in your like your like your A levels or your yeah. end of, sc- end of school. secondary school high school exams so you need to basically get everything e- right everything right in your exams all, wow. all but you have what to they be were perfect. finding was wow. that there was a lot of really really smart people at studying and passing exams but could not communicate with clients which is you know such an important aspect of the medical profession so they now have uh it's there's two exams one you sit an interview and you get a personality test really i didn't know that yeah so for medicine so that and that uh, backs up the the points you get in your exams as well so it's not just on academic academic. answers yeah that's awesome that's very good but that's why we, you know, now we see more coming through. The doctors are much better at communicating with the patients because if we if we speak to everybody in medical speak, like I don't understand it sometimes. You yeah. know, I, but I just turn around and say, look, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're saying. Can you can you yeah. explain that in a different way? Whereas when you're a patient and all you want to do is like, sometimes you just want to get out of the room. You Most know, of the like, time. Okay, Most of the okay, time they want to okay, get out of the room. Fine. And yeah. you know, you're gone and you leave and you think, I actually don't know what, what oh, the yeah. I was showing, I was showing someone yeah. around the clinic there recently that uh, runs a very successful sort of um, uh, a gym in Dubai. And he said, you know, we want to link up with a company that when uh, our client comes to you and they come back in, they can explain what's wrong with them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a thing and it's I just so can't important. believe mm. clinicians don't prioritize that that when you leave you should know exactly what's wrong with yeah. you and and what you should do to make that better that's instead the biggest part of it. Yeah. you get a report where you can't read, read any it. of the <laughs> words yeah. there's lots of long words yeah. in it but even, but well, <laughs> even, even if you have a report that's better than not having a report because I've, I've people come to me often and goes the doctor says I have a disc in my neck <laughs> And I'm like, I'm like, good job. Oh I'm pleased. I know. I know. Snap, I've got one. Yeah, we, we, we all have, we've got seven, but like, this isn't, I, you can't say that to this person because it's not their fault. They have, n- in, their, in their life up until that moment, they never thought about what was in their neck. Do you know, they didn't care. And they, it's back to not yeah. having that awareness of Exactly. So they come to go, I have, a, I have a disc in my neck. And I'm like, I need more. I need a little bit more. Okay, and then it's about trying to find the report that you got in the scan and then trying to rely on the report. Let's hope the report was read well back at the beginning. Okay, let's work from this. At least it does a report. We, we, we can But we you can can't read. <laughs> but when you have... I had another guy message me saying he had big, long text on an Instagram message. He had risky shoulder blade. 
Oh, bless. What? In a big long <laughs> risky. risky. He'd been given too much information and he had remembered it all in the sense where he'd sat there and gone, something about his spiral line was wrong. He had risky shoulder blade. He had tightness in this and it was too much. I'm going to have to Google that. Risky <laughs> shoulder blade. Yeah. <laughs> Not heard of that I one. I don't know what it was. It could have been anything. But the, <laughs> the fact that this guy was the opposite, he was so, I'm going to remember this all. But it still doesn't go in because they don't have the grounding in the terminology. So it's like the report, get a report. Or the one thing I would say is if you're if you're in a assessment or you're anything, write it down. Just you don't have to remember. You're not expected really to know. Like I'm not expected to know what's wrong with my car. If you tell me my carburetor is broken and my my piston's broken, I don't know what that is. But I don't have to. If I turn to this guy and go, "Can you fix that?" This is what's wrong. I expect him to be able to. That's what you're paying for. And I think the other thing to remember is that, look, from a physical point of view, we don't really treat scans. So, as Tafe said, if we scan you, we'll find all sorts. And that's normal. Maybe even a risky mm. shot. Maybe even <laughs> a risky <laughs> shot. <laughs> but that's completely normal. So, from your movement perspective and from a physio perspective, yeah, okay, let's note it. Keep it in the back of our mind. But that person's probably had this for ages. Yeah. You know, they've been working on this. It's normal for them. It's normal for them, you know. know. They've Mm. had it for, they've been working on it for years. It's not something new. Well, what I like to do when I get get the report, because I'm in a gym now and I'm reading the report, is I talk about all the things that are okay. Do you know, no joint effusion, no this, no that. Look, that's good, that's good, that's good. All right, you got this one thing, but there's like 10 other things that are great. All right, let's get going. We can work with all this. We can make all this work. And it's kind of shift their perspective on it, but at least they feel like I've addressed it. Yeah, yeah. You have to and you're speaking it. positively yeah. about the things that are right with them and yeah. what's working, as opposed to just continuing to to give negative information. Yeah, it's it's a crazy the whole communication. Because the other thing I was thinking as you're talking earlier is, you can teach somebody how to communicate with with people, but when you only have 15 minutes or 20 minutes, you don't really know what kind of a learner the client is. Whether they're like, do you understand if I just beat you with information? Or do I need to draw on the board? It could be four or five sessions before. Because I know I've spoken to people, some of the guys we play rugby with, I've spoken to in the past, and I can I can see them clued in and they get it. And I know they get it. I can see the cogs turning and they're out the door. They understand what's going on. But then you speak to other people and they're like, yep, yep, <laughs> yep. And yeah. And it's like, oh, you, okay, you're not getting it. No problem. Uh, I need to come up. I need to say it a different way or I need to say, okay, let's get going and maybe I can explain it to you over here. And then right at the end of the session, they go, oh, <laughs> and it's like, good, good, that's fine. It, it, it took us an hour, but I don't mind. At least you're leaving now and you're going to come back next week and we can move from here. What have you got, like 25 minutes in an assessment? Or sometimes GPs have 15 minutes with people? Mm. Do you know what's interesting? I read something about the US, uh, about doctors in the US who were getting sued. And they did this study about it. And they noticed that doctors who spent five minutes more with their clients were getting sued so much less than than doctors that were seeing their clients at like five to ten minute intervals. I don't know how they manage with that. I I made it a clear thing that like session time is so important because you have to leave, like we said. I get the client at the end of the session to repeat exactly. I, I ask them, so tell me what's wrong with your knee? And they have to tell me exactly. And I said, and how are you gonna fix that? And they have to tell me and explain to me and show me. And then I go, okay. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. That's good. We're very lucky yeah. that we're in an environment where the the boss respects that we need that time. Um, and that's what m- we're trying to do differently because I, I come from an NHS background and private in the UK. And even in that environment, there's so much push on see get people through. We've mm. got such a big waiting list, blah, 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 blah. 
that's all very well and good but if I can spend 40 minutes with someone and take the time we've got some lovely apps that we use we look at the scans we show them the apps we explain things you know get them to reason it themselves do you understand yes no that extra 10 minutes of doing that might mean that I get them better in five sessions rather than 10. Yeah. So actually the like it, it can speed up the waiting list because these people the aren't going to join it. Because I'm yeah. not having to yeah. see them as much and because they're also happy. They're like, I know what's wrong with me. Mm. I know how we're going to fix it. This is what I need to do. And we go from there. Whereas yeah. we go around in circles. Otherwise. I think a big thing within Dubai like um, that we're seeing is that insurance companies are clamping down on what is covered and they're reading very deeply into um, you know what you're doing with your client, which it, you know is twofold because it's great in the sense that people that have been seen by a clinician for 30, 40 sessions and isn't improving, they're, they're flagging this and going, right, they're either not doing something right or they need to go, go elsewhere. And um, so that extra bit of time, if they can see that you as a clinician can get buy-in from your client and that they're finishing, their, their, they're recovering from their injury in a quicker amount of time, it's going to help everyone, you know. Um, and that's a big push in. Yeah. Keith and I discussed this weekend how... Um, you know, a big part of the thing in the UAE, uh, particularly in Dubai at the moment, is uh, a push for medical tourism. Mm. You know, um, I think there was a statistic that they spent, the UAE government spent 30 billion last year sending people from here overseas for treatment. Really? And so that's, and the main places are Germany, Thailand, Singapore. Those are the three top uh, destinations. And then Lond England comes uh, just below that. Um, so from here that they will go there for treatment and the idea is that especially among GCC everyone comes and gets treated within here and that we have yeah. the not just the facilities but the expertise and um, knowledge to, to provide that service here and the communication yeah. because here's obviously we have so many cultures and yeah, languages, and, languages and, yeah. and you know okay if we're all going to communicate in English we need to give our patients if English is not their first language yeah. enough time to understand what we're yeah. trying to do um, and yeah I think that's something that in most healthcare facilities or give us enough time to, to learn yeah. Arabic <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> once a week lesson is um, yeah you guys are learning <laughs> Arabic yeah. oh, very slowly slow. <laughs> very slowly <laughs> But at least yeah. we're trying, at least we're trying. Um, um, yeah, so that, you know, it is a super important. And I think the being realistic in their expectations as well. So making sure it's not going to be two months, it's going to be two years. Okay, this is what you're going to have to do. But at, this, at the same time, some doctors because they're not directly involved in rehab or exercise they actually wouldn't know the time frames because yeah it's all well and good that like you have a bone that's fixed it's been like molded together with all of this metal and then they're like yeah my job is done but that bone can't take weight it can't walk it can't move it can't do anything so yeah it's really different we were also saying this weekend that how personal trainers have a role to play in this because especially in Dubai it's very common that clients that you'll see will have a personal trainer and the more knowledgeable and up to speed they are in injury I mean I was very impressed that there was a, a girl that came on the course with us uh, yeah. last weekend yeah one of the trainers yeah sporting and she was a you know a personal trainer and you know that's someone that I would certainly be keen to send my clients to if she's doing that extra you know um, study in this area um, she'd be much more up to speed 
uh, especially like I said with this push with medical tourism if they can attach themselves to different clinicians you can get a good referral source yeah, like yeah. well this is the the whole reason that we decided to start this because of that reason because like I remember going to loads of PTs they were all like we're rehab specialists <laughs> aside from you <laughs> and uh, they were just doing ridiculous things with me and obviously because I'm in this industry I was like this is not right like I was going into a gym on crutches and then they were having like me sit and lift up and stand with a weight and it's like I can't I can't even <laughs> walk <laughs> or this guy put me on a power plate oh, no. and my feet were full of metal powers. I started crying oh. and I got off and I was like I can't do this and I left that was number three and then I went somewhere else but it's you'll be so surprised how many people here and here are saying that they're one thing and something totally different and they have no yeah (laughs) obviously something that we've tried to create a little bit since being here is that you have a network of I have a network of personal trainers that I work with um like Keith that was one of the starting points how we um got connected but it's super important because if I'm trying to achieve something with a patient um, and you're doing something else, we're fighting against each other and actually the patient in the middle is the one that suffers. So um, it's super important that we both trust each other. So for example, like if Keith was to send me someone and I go, nope, not training, not training for six weeks, sorry. You're gonna be like, what on earth is she doing? You know, whereas I'll I'll say to Keith, okay, cool, like got them, this is what we're going to do in your sessions. Please, can you not do this, this and this? And I'll give you an update next week once I've seen them and then we'll progress it on from there. And it works really well, you you know, and they actually get better. you can do this, 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 you know. Um, Well, I only say that to Keith. (laughs) 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 For the patient, it's all like, yeah, do it, do it, do it. I think as well what's important (laughs) is people shouldn't be afraid to ask. Because one of the things I was impressed about on, on that course was that trainer was... She was putting her hand up and like when I walked into the room, I felt a little bit, uh-oh, because everybody here is a physio. Um, a couple of people, we've had Brian and Miffy, they're on the course. And I was like, oh dear. And the first thing, I was 10 minutes late. First thing, that w- <laughs> Keith, classic, never. classic no. Keith. <laughs> first thing, first thing I see on the board is MRI scans and he's talking us through trochlears and all these things. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, this is going to be a long weekend. And I, I know the girl. So I thought, wow, she's going to be, she's going to really struggle this weekend. Like I hope, because I told her about the course. I hope she doesn't think I kind of, I sold her out of it. She was putting her hand up and asking all sorts of questions that, granted, many people in the room might have known, but she didn't know. I was like, yes, good, ask. If I'm you sorry, but some people in the room wouldn't have known. Possibly, mm. but this is the other thing I did say to her before. I was like, look, everyone's there to learn. Yeah, and absolutely. what you know, other people don't know. Yeah, and what absolutely. I know, other people don't know. And what they know, they don't know. So, like, we're all there to learn. But I was so impressed that she was just jamming her hand up mm-hmm. and going, excuse me can I just ask what that is and I was like yes good and everybody was so helpful to her even because Tim was fantastic but even the other physios she was sitting beside were were, were helping her out nobody looked down on her nobody said hey you should know you should know that it was like no ask questions if you don't know ask you get way more respect and admiration and people are going to be way more helpful once they understand that you don't understand I think that's so important when you're when you're trying to learn so if you're in a communication with a physio and the physio says don't just go okay got it yeah and then no definitely definitely because yeah again the communication between us is just as important as the communication between the patient you know yeah and don't worry that's something that is consistent through all medical training i think actually is people not being confident enough just to say actually i don't know um and that's something that we both had experience of in the past and now um as 
um, leading a department, it's something that we have a policy where we say, you know, no question's a stupid question. Yeah. Ask it. If you don't know, don't muddle through, just ask. Um, and it's the same from patient to colleague to anybody. Yeah. You know? um, even with the doctors, sometimes they look at me and they're like, you don't know that? I'm like, well, no, because I haven't been working in respiratory medicine for nearly eight years. Yeah. Like, I can't remember this stuff. So give me a heads up. What, yeah. what is it you're trying to tell me? Um, and it's just much, it's safer for everybody ultimately. So Yeah, I and everyone just gets onto the same page much quicker. Yeah, exactly. It's the end exactly. of the best thing. And you'll, you'll be surprised. Things that I don't know, you'll know loads about. And actually, it's helpful for me. Yeah. So I'd like to question you about that. And I think that's great that she did that. It's yeah, it was really, really, really important. It's good. That's cute, Annie. Well, guys, thanks for, for coming in. Where can people get you, follow you guys online or do you have any websites or anything like that <laughs> that you'd like to push? Um. We need to up our social media <laughs> game, don't we? Um, I'm no, off you can the radar. F- yeah, you can, you can find us at, at Valiant Clinic. So yeah. um, we're on the website there and um, you give the call center call if you want to make a booking with either of us. Um, and get that full corporate athlete pro. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think we need, yeah. we need to do this. We need to do this. The thing is they, they offer their um, direct billing for clients so with the majority of insurance companies in Dubai so um, if you do have uh, an injury and you want to be seen that's it generally that it will be direct billing so awesome um, I think the other thing if you want to get in contact directly it might take us a few days is LinkedIn and um, that's okay. probably the only yeah. thing Valiant on I'm LinkedIn or you guys no us. no just, oh, yeah. just us on LinkedIn yeah Anna Wilkinson and Tafe Delaney yep. otherwise we're off I'm off radar so <laughs> <laughs> that's it yeah. it's probably for the best <laughs> really. in some instances yeah when you're busy doing other stuff so, yeah. or, or a dodgy past one of the other <laughs> <laughs> hiding from people <laughs> cool. alright well thanks for coming to speak to us guys we'll, uh, thanks for having us hopefully have you on again soon definitely mm-hmm. bye guys thank you bye, bye.